2 Chronicles chapter 5. And today we're going to begin uh, a new series of messages, uh, three messages on the subject of worship. We're going to be talking about the wonder, the ways, and the warfare of worship. And one of the reasons why, among others, is that we're, one of the reasons why we're doing this, among others, is that it has been at least eight years and maybe nine since I have done any teaching among uh, us about the, about the subject of worship. And it is something we take very, very seriously. It is um, something that we, we, we um, talk a lot about, we do a lot of, and, I, and we're passionate about. And yet anything that we do that doesn't remain rooted in a firm understanding of why and what the scripture is, is uh, saying about a thing either becomes simply a habit or, or a religious practice. And we don't want any, either of those things to happen among us. And so we're back to making sure that we understand what worship is about from a scriptural standpoint. So uh, that's where we're coming from. And today we're going to talk about the wonder of worship. And I'll just... Uh, jump to the punchline. Is that okay? The wonder of worship is that we get to experience the presence of God. We get to experience the presence of God. Not just talk about it, not just theorize about it, but actually experience, be in the present real-time presence of God. That's wondrous and wonderful beyond comprehension. And we're going to read a story that begins in chapter, or verse 11 of chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles. And I want to give you the backstory before I start to read. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were initially led by family members. Abraham, then his son Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They eventually ended up in Egypt, and most of you know the story there. They were there for 400 years. Coming out of Egypt, the people of Israel were led by Moses, then by Joshua, and then by a series of judges, people who served as kind of uh, prophets, um, leaders, and arbiters, um, and then the people cried out and, to God and asked for a king, like all of their neighbors, all the other people, all of the other nations of the world, they wanted a king. And God granted that to them. The first king of Israel, his name was Saul. And he began really great, but flamed out pretty quickly and became kind of a, kind of a miserable spot on the record of Israel's kings. But he was... Succeeded by David, the greatest king of Israel. Most of you know the story of David and Goliath. You may not know much more about him than that, but let me just tell you, David is considered by you know, uh, people of faith to be the greatest king of Israel because of his heart for God. The Bible says he pursued the heart of God. He was after the heart of God. And although he was completely human and really screwed up in a big way a couple of times, just like the rest of us, for his lifetime and for the, 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 the duration of his rule and reign and far be, before that, 
He pursued God with passion and devotion and led the people of Israel with integrity. He wanted to build a house of worship, a place uh, for the worship of God that would be a monument, that it would stand out. He, in his heart, he thought that it can't be that I live in a palace and God lives in, and that's a weird way to describe it, but that's how, the bio, that's how David thought about it, even though he knew that God doesn't live in any kind of structure that we could ever make. He had it in his mind that it's, it's just weird that I live in this palace and God lives in a tent because you see the people of Israel in those days, they worshiped the Lord literally at a tent. And I don't mean like, you know, a two-man pup tent. I mean, it was much more elaborate than that, designed by God himself, given to Mo the instructions given to Moses as he led the people out of Israel, how this tent was to be made. But nonetheless, it was fabric and poles and ropes. It was a tent. And David just couldn't hardly stand that notion. He, he believed that, that, the, that the worship of God ought to be housed in a more grand uh, facility. And so uh, he, he pursued that before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, David, no, you, you can't do this because you've been a warrior. You're, there's blood on your hands. But your son will do this. Your son will build this. And so David got to assemble all the materials that would be needed to construct the temple. He got to uh, uh, create and design the plans. He got to uh, engage the services of the people who will actually do the overseeing of the project and the, and the construction of everything. So he set it all up and, and left it for his son Solomon, the third king of Israel, to do. Solomon has done that now. We're going to be dropping in on grand opening day. It was, the temple of God was a wonder of the world. It was white marble and gold and on a hill and it shone in the sun and you could see it from miles around and people coming to worship ascended up to it and the process of anticipation as you came up to the temple was grand and glorious and the, the worship services that were conducted there were uh, magnificent in every way. This is grand opening day. And how many of you have ever been to a grand opening of a store or something like that? And they put up the balloons and streamers and, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody's in a joyful mood and stuff. Well, this was, you know, off the charts in that regard. And uh, so here we go, verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place. Let me stop right there, comma. The most holy place. Okay, so th this was true of the tabernacle. And now it's true of the temple. That the inner heart of the temple facility was called the most holy place. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, was housed and it was holy. It was considered sacred. You couldn't just wander in there. In fact, in, in most, this is an exception that we're going to read here now, but except for this exception, you couldn't go in there unless you were the high priest and even then only once a year. Out, extending out of that most holy place was an area called the holy place. And that's where the Levites conducted business. And uh, won't go into all that went on there. But then beyond that was the courtyard where most people would gather to worship the Lord. So we're talking about the most holy place and the priests are coming out of there. And it says, For all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. What does that mean? Well, when it's talking about divisions, it, it's meaning the groups or the teams because the activities and the, uh, the labor of the Levites who were the priesthood, the family of Israel that, or the tribe of Israel that was 
charged with all of the priestly duties, they, they divided their labor up and their duties uh, into teams. And so some teams were on duty for this period of time and then another and then another. Um, and so they cycled through that, that agenda. But today, for grand opening day, everybody's there. All hands on deck. Every one of the priests are there. And they didn't care whether they were on the schedule or not. They were there to be part of this. That's why it says they, they sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites, who were the singers, all of those of Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, these were family names. And their particular role in leading worship had to do with vocalizing, singing. And they not only were singers, but they led people in singing. They were skilled at it with their sons and their brethren. They stood at the east end of the altar. The writer of Second Chronicles is trying to give us a picture, an image. So in your mind, imagine this, that these singers, and there's a bunch of them, they're assembled on the east end of the altar. They're clothed in white linen. They have cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps. And with them, 120 priests ready to sound with trumpets. Now there were, I think, seven uh, members of our worship team up here on the platform this morning. We're talking hundreds of people prepared to lead the people of God in worship. It is going to be big. Just imagine yourself there in that moment. All of these people dressed in this in white linen, skilled musicians. They're all set to go. Verse 13, Indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So that the priests could not continue ministering. Because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. An amazing moment. An amazing scene. And we can only barely grasp what it might have been like in our mind's eye. But please have that picture there as we talk today about the wonder of worship. That is, God would visit us as we praise Him. Now the the presence, experiencing the presence of the Lord is um, first and foremost, I want you to see, initiated by God. It's, it's God's plan. It isn't ours. It's his plan. Psalm 22 verse 3 says that God in, is enthroned upon the praises of his people. That word enthroned literally means inhabits. He is, he lives there. He dwells there in that place where our worship rises to him. He, he's there. God does that. It's on his mind. It's on his heart. It's his desire. It didn't start with us. It starts with him. 
Now, I went, you know, a few years, several years ago, and I was in Taiwan, which I'll, I'll be there again in a, about a week and a half. And I was teaching in the discipleship training school there, and a Korean girl came up to me, and she said, I don't remember why this was on her mind, but um, she came to me, and she said, Randy, I don't understand. When we talk about, you know, why is it that we will sing songs that talk about, oh, God, come and dwell among us, or people will pray that way. I hear ministers get up and say, Lord Jesus, come. I don't understand that. If God is everywhere, if he fills all in all, if, if he has chosen never to leave us or forsake us, if he's proclaimed that he will be with us even to the end of the age, then, then why is it that we're asking him to come? And I said, I don't know. No, I said, <laughs> I said, you're right. I said, it's theologically weird to ask God to come somewhere he already is. That's just, that's just weird. But it is the way that we express our desire. Lord, we want you here. We welcome your presence. We want for you to invade this space. We want for you to inhabit this place of our worship. And so, yeah, we use awkward language. We say, come, when he's already here. But it's the way we're saying, Lord, we want you to come. But it begins with God. It begins with God. It's his desire. It's always been his desire to be with his people. And it's such a shame that so many of us think of God as being far off and aloof and wanting distance from us. It's exactly the opposite. God, just read the Bible. You can't escape the fact that we have a God who wants to be with us. He wants to press into where we are. In fact, that's why Jesus came. God in flesh, so he could walk among us. It's God's plan to be present with us. And experiencing the presence of the Lord is, has nothing to do with human effort. It's neither uh, the result of nor sustained by anything we could ever do. But I know that because I'm, I'm in the business, I'm in the church business, I know that we often give the impression that, you know, it's up to us. We got to crank up enough activity up here. We got to get enough volume going. We got to have planned and prepared the program well enough, grease the skids enough that God might show up, that it's up to us. It isn't. It's God's business. This is what he wants to do. In fact, in the story we just read, <laughs> the priests who had prepared this elaborate program were completely sidelined. They couldn't even get out of their seats because God was present. He didn't need anything more that they, than just to be with them. But I want you to think about this, that as much as it's God's desire and as much as he has promised to be present with us when we worship him, we can miss him. His presence, the experiencing his presence is promised but not guaranteed. I didn't say his presence is not guaranteed. I said experiencing his presence is not guaranteed. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but all of you know what it's like to sit through a service and you didn't sense the Lord at all. Well, that wasn't because of him. 
I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Because the next thing I want you to see is that although the, experiencing the presence of the Lord is in worship is initiated by God, it is invited by our preparation. It's invited by our preparation. It says there that the, that the priests were determined. They were choosing to worship God that day. Even if they weren't on the schedule, even if they, you know, it wasn't their, their day, they were determined to worship the Lord. So there was choice involved. It says that they sanctified themselves. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they set themselves. It was actually a description of a very elaborate process. There were washings, cleansings that they had to go through, ceremonial and otherwise. There were clothing, certain types of clothing that they had to wear. There were things that they needed to abstain from doing, things that they were supposed to do as they prepared themselves to be in that holy moment with the presence of God. They prepared themselves. So they chose, they were determined to be with God. They sanctified themselves and they allowed their hearts to fill with anticipation. They're all there on the platform, all ready to go, waiting for that moment when they could lift their voices and cut loose with exaltation for the king of all kings. There was an anticipation that they felt. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you showed up here on a Sunday morning having determined to worship God today? Having, having consecrated yourself? Thought through maybe the the, through the week, you know what? I, I need to make sure my mind is in the right place. I'm not going to watch that movie tonight. Maybe I shouldn't go and do that thing so that my emotions and my heart's in the right place for when I show up there on Sunday morning. That I'm not distracted with other things. When was the last time that on your way here, and this is obviously not the only place where we worship God, but I... When was the last time you were on your way here? Driving from wherever it is that you come from in your car, walking, you know, if you live nearby, walking here where the anticipation was rising. Not just, wow, I'm, I'm so late, I got to hurry, I got to get there. And, you know, I, oh, by the way, get out of my lane. And, you know, and, and oh, I got to remember to do this and do that. And when was it the last time that you were coming here with a sense of anticipation? A rising expectation that I'm going to be in the presence of God today. I'm not scolding anyone because I'm really just tattling on myself. It doesn't, honestly, doesn't happen nearly enough for me that I come to these moments of being in the presence of God, prepared. In fact, there are some of us, let me just tell on you now, okay? There are some of us that even getting here on a Sunday morning is a flip of the coin. How do I feel this morning? Man, you know, I'm not so sure I'm going to put forth the effort to get here. Maybe there's a football game on. Maybe, you know, I don't know, not today. <laughs> really? I mean, it's not on your calendar that regardless of who's playing... Regardless of what I feel like, I'm going to be in the presence of God today. You don't have that on your schedule. You, don't, you haven't decided that your week points to that moment. 
Let me tell you, we need to be people who are prepared. It initiates, the, it ignites uh, the, the presence of God. Actually, I want to use that word for my next point, which is that the presence, experiencing the presence of God is initiated by God, invited by preparation, and ignited by unity. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says that where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. Again, what does that mean? I, I mean, okay, God, if you're always with us, then, then what does it mean that you're with us when there's two or more of us? I don't know the answer to that, but I know what it feels like. There's an experience of the presence of God that we have when we're with others that's not like when I'm by myself or by myself. Now, it's not better. Neither one is better or worse. They're both important, but there is a unique way. I experience the presence of God when I'm with you. This is a rather simplistic illustration, but years ago when I was like, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade, I went with a, the youth group from my church uh, to Disneyland. Now, Disneyland is one of my favorite places. Disneyland and Hawaii are the closest things to heaven I know. <laughs> and so, you know, I love to go there. I have my whole life. And uh, I went there, but I didn't know any of the people I went there with. I'm kind of a loner anyway, and I don't, you know, I don't make friends real well. Uh, so you can, you can start to feel sorry for me because I was... <laughs> I was there at Disneyland all by myself. <laughs> it was miserable. My favorite place on earth, and I was miserable. Why? Because I didn't have anybody to share it with. I get on these rides that normally I'm hooting and hollering and screaming, but I'm with strangers, and it's like, you know, it's just not the same. I, there was nobody to say, isn't that, you know, it's, it was, it's just not the same. And, and yeah, it's a simplistic illustration, but man, there's something about sharing that space where God is present that's, man, it's like, wow. And so when we gather together with one voice and one purpose to honor God with the lifting up of his praises, there is something very powerful that happens. Not in this church, and thank God, well, I don't know. If I, I guess I'm thankful for it. But in, in uh, previous pastors, I've, I've pastored three other churches uh, before coming here to Crossroads. And uh, I had had uh, times when, not many, but some, when people would come to me and they would say, Randy, you're, you're a little heavy-handed when it comes to worship or worship leading. Why don't you just let us be free? You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? If I want to dance, let me dance. If I want to bang my tambourine, let me... Please, don't ever bring a tambourine here. Okay? <laughs> if I, I, look, I know what they... I knew exactly what they meant, and um, I, I'm... Believe it or not, I'm first in line to say we ought to have freedom in worship. You know, I don't want to constrict us to some boxed-in, pre-programmed. That's not, that's not worship. However, when we're together, 
There is value to speaking and singing with one voice. When I say, let's all stand, or I say, let's all kneel, or I say, let's all lift our voices, or let's all lift our hands, it's because of what we just read. When, they, when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard praising and thanking the Lord. There's a unity that, in worship that's important. So experiencing the presence of the Lord in worship is it's initiated by God, invited by, his presence, by, by our preparation and ignited by our unity. It's also substantial. What do I mean by that? This stuff, whatever it was, <laughs> you know, the writer of, the, of Second Chronicles is using the word cloud, but I don't think it was moisture. I don't think it was H2O. He was just trying to find a way to help us imagine it. Whatever it was, it had weight to it. So much so that, it, you know, the priests couldn't get up anymore. They couldn't even get out of their seats. God was pressing in on them. It was substantial. They felt it. And I'll bet you, you've had those kinds of experiences in worship. Doesn't it, you don't, you're, doesn't your heart just long for that to always be that I sense you, God. The presence of the Lord is not theoretical, it's not theological, and it is not emotional. It's real. It's substantial. When you're there in the presence of God and you feel your throat tighten, not because anybody's choking you, but because your, your emotion is beginning to... to um, uh, get in line with the reality of what's happening. You know God is here. It might, it might bring tear, tears to your eyes. You might find yourself, you know, bowing or kneeling, just not because anybody told you to, just because God is here. It's substantial. It's real. And there's, it's meant for us. God means for us to have that is not an unusual experience or occurrence, but whenever we gather to worship him. Last of all, of the things I want to talk to you about today is experiencing the presence of God is permeating. Well, what does that mean? That means it penetrates to every part of our lives. The, the, when, when God is present, he he gets into all the nooks and crannies, all the things that are going on in your life that you might not even want anybody else to know about or you, ha or you're, uh, you haven't uh, known how to even describe. God knows how to get there and because he wants to do something there. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I, I may have even told this story before, but in, I was pastoring uh, my first church. We... Um, and I had reached the point where of, of really serious and complete burnout and nobody's fault but my own. And I had this really strange day. It was a Saturday. We had three weekend services, a Friday night uh, and two on Sunday morning. And I don't, I don't even remember Friday night. I, uh, I likely just phoned it in, you know. I mean, I... I 
But by Saturday morning, I was just weird. I was uh, dis uh, disassociated. I, I, it was the strangest day I, I, I have ever lived. I never want to experience it before. I was angry at the world. And I, you know, I, I don't want to say I was suicidal, but I had reached a place where I didn't care anything about me or anybody else. It was just, oh, I can't even, I don't even want to remember it, honestly. <laughs> But I had to be to church the next day. I showed up for our early service and I sat in the front row. I didn't greet anybody. I kept my head down. All I'm thinking is I'm going to get up there. I'm going to say what I have to say and I'm going to get out of here. But then the people started to worship God. And when people worship God, he's present. And he has a way to get into all of those places. You may not even want him in and change things. And he began to deal with stuff. And, you know, like that, things can change in your life and in your mind. Stuff you've been struggling with and not knowing how to deal with. And you worship the Lord. And like that, it becomes clear. I know what it's like to be worshiping the Lord and, and a physical infirmity be healed in the moment. It, it, God is serious about meeting us and doing the things that only He can do. And the worship of the Lord facilitates that from our, our vantage point. This is recording number 11126 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, October 12, 2014. This is the first message in a series by Randy Bolt titled, Praise the Lord. This message is titled, The Wonder of Worship. 